Scripture reading this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. The soldiers left Je- led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorn and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice on the charges against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insult at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insult on him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we gather this morning, not because we're deserving of your love, not because we've lived faithfully before your face. We gather because you loved us before we could love you. We gather because you have called us. Father, you've given your Son for our salvation. In him we see, rather than saving himself, he is saving his people. Father, we come and we confess, at least I confess, Lord, how easily I can treat this story as so well known, almost flippantly. A story that we're so familiar with that we can easily lose sight of its mind-blowing nature. Father, make us aware that we're looking at the pinnacle of history. Holy Spirit, soften our hearts, open our ears, unclutter our minds. May we be moved again by the heart and power of what's unfolding on these pages. Lord, we also take this time to pray for our brothers and sisters who gather in other places this morning. There are many churches across this city who proclaim you, Christ. May they continue today. 
Now, Father, as we turn to the passage, I pray you would spark our imagination. May these words come to life in our mind's eye and in our hearts. In the saving name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, I have no interesting introductory story. I have no humorous anecdotes. I have no real pop culture references, although I admit there's one later. Um, while not bad things and typical at the start, right, of a sermon or a talk or a lecture or any type of thing, I think sometimes it's good to just admit that there is a weightiness and a heaviness that we need to feel. There's a weightiness that needs to be felt this morning. In, in, in this passage and in the chapters that surround this passage, we come to the central point of the story. The central point of the story. The central point of history, of time. This is the pinnacle of the Bible. This is the point where God the Son suffers and dies undeservedly, unjustly, yet out of love. This is the moment where Christ, God, experiences mockery, experiences rejection, experiences exclusion, experiences bullying, and yet he stays the course. I think this is the moment, wherever you are in your walk, wherever you are in your faith, whether you believe or not believe, this is the moment where you have to answer the question, who was this Jesus? Who was he? Was he the ridiculous king that the guards and the priests and the passerbyers and the thieves all claimed that he was? Or was he truly the king? This is something we all have to answer and wrestle with. It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to the Jews. This wasn't the king that we wanted. Get him out of here. Foolishness to the Gentiles. No king suffers a death like this. But the power of God to those who are being called. Now the ugly scene that we have before us is, this is a part in in Mark that is given to us in snapshots, is given to us in little pictures, little vignettes, little little Polaroids of, of, of scene to scene, moving very, very quickly. So quickly, and I think so well known to us, that, that, that we, can, we can fly right by without letting it sit, without letting our hearts feel what is happening. I mean, in fact, I mean, verse 24, in four words, and they crucified him. Four words. Unbelievable amounts of pain, unbelievable amounts of what's happening. We can, we can lose sight of what's unfolding before us. We can say, well, I know this. Give me something new. Give me something deep. But in all of these snapshots, in all of these little vignettes, we, we see one key theme emerging. Mark wants his readers to know that Jesus was crucified as the king of the Jews. From Pilate's decree 
to the mockery that the guards lay before him, to the placard above the cross. He's condemned for being the king of the Jews. And this idea will circle around again near the conclusion. Now, if, if you were with us last week, Rick unpacked uh, the, 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 the mock trial that took place. I think that's an interesting word because at some level, right, it was a mockery of justice. It was a, a, a fake trial, a false trial, a ridiculous trial for a king who they thought was ridiculous. And in that moment, you see Jesus swap with Jesus. You see the innocent swap with the guilty. You see the one who wanted to be the revolutionary leader and the other who repudiated such ideas of, of kingship. And so he was the one suffering, condemned for it, as king of the Jews. Now as our passage opens, the, the soldiers are, are leading Jesus. Jesus is being led. He's being compelled. He's being driven like a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah 53, 7. Like an animal to the slaughter. And remember, he's already been beaten severely up to this point. Blood and bone. They bring him to the barracks. And all the soldiers say, come on, come on, we've got somebody here. And people come out. And they begin to, like the power of a mob, inflict pain, both emotional and physical. And I think there's an interesting historical context that amplifies what's happening here. Okay, so, so these are not the guards that arrested Jesus in the garden. Those were temple guards. These are guards that would have been a part of, of Pilate's occupying army. So they would have been Romans, but they wouldn't have been Romans in the true sense of the term, because they were too far from Rome. This far out, most often guards were auxiliaries. They were, they were men conscripted from the surrounding region, not a part of the general army. And so these men were probably from Caesarea, Samaria, areas surrounding Jerusalem. And I think this amplifies the context of what's unfolding because at some level, it's, it's made up of men who probably had an anti-Jewish prejudice. And even more, they're mocking and saying, this guy was your king? Pfft. And so they begin to bully Jesus. They put the purple robe on him. Crown of thorns. Again, mockery. They ridicule and they show their contempt for the Jews and, and for Jesus, this pitiful king. Hail the king of the Jews. They continue to bully and spit, beat on him, an already broken Jesus. In the sway of the mob, we see the devaluing of human life. We see ridicule. We see mockery. I think we see sarcasm. Think about it. Sarcasm is, is someone saying something that they think is absurd. Someone saying something that they think is untrue. Someone saying something that they think is ridiculous. Literally means to tear the flesh. Interesting. Hail, King of the Jews! They even go so far as to bow before Him. They make a joke out of Christ. He's turned into a sarcastic joke. 
And even now I can imagine them kneeling before him, saying this flippantly in his face, spitting in his face and slapping him as they get up, laughing. And when the guards had filled their stomach on their sarcastic homage to the king, they throw the cross on him. Now, it wouldn't have been the whole cross. It would have been just a beam. But again, his back is torn to shreds. He's lost blood. He is weak, and he can't carry it. He, he, he just can't. And so they, they have the power to take somebody and say, okay, you carry it. All to say, this is no king. We are the Romans. We are the ones in charge. And they would have walked him through as, as public of places as possible so that others could see he's no king. To inflict fear and shame on the people. Don't try this again. And it, interesting, this, this Simon of Cyrene, it's interesting that he references, Mark references his kids, Alexander and Rufus. This probably was because Simon probably became a follower of Christ. And the letter, as Mark was written, it was probably sent to the church where Alexander and Rufus were a part of. This was the moment where he said, this is the king. Simon literally bore the cross that Jesus says we are to bear earlier in Mark. Finally, we come to the place of the skull, Golgotha. Would have been just outside the wall, the city wall. Would have been, again, in a public place so they can put on spectacle and remind the people who's in charge, remind the people how not to be. They would have stripped him naked to continue the shame. Even though our pictures have him clothed, everybody was crucified naked. And they nail him to the cross. Four words, and they crucified him. Four words. And even here, as he's hanging on the cross, he was continued to be mocked, continued to be jeered, continued to be insulted. Mark's making clear that everyone rejected him. Everyone. We saw the guards already sarcastically ridiculing him. The passerbys continue the mockery. The leaders, the chief priests, continue the mockery. And even the rebels hanging next to him heap their insults upon him. In verse 32, I think it's the same vein that we see with the sarcasm of the guards. We would believe now if he came down off the cross, saved himself. We know that's not sincere. They had seen sign after sign, miracle after miracle, but had not believed. This moment would have been no different. To the leaders, to the chief priests, to others, this was no king. At least not the king that they wanted. This mockery at some level reflects the kind of king that they had hoped for. The human idea of what a king should be, what a king ought to be. But Jesus had shown them in his life that he doesn't fit any king category known to them. 
mean, come on, no king puts himself last. No king takes the role of a slave and washes his followers' feet. No king willingly, at least without putting up a fight, willingly goes to their death, even more death on a cross. And so because this doesn't fit what the people believed a king should be, they mock him, they reject him. They begin ridiculing that which they cannot comprehend, taking refuge in their supposed place of superiority, refusing to take seriously what is unfolding before their very eyes. Now let's stop here. Let's stop and address an attitude that can be easy for us. Well, I admit, I don't, I don't know your heart. I don't know your inner dialogue, but it can be easy for me. It can be dangerously easy to look at this picture, this snapshot, and say, those fools, how they missed it. How ironic that they didn't see the king truly was being crucified. All the while, I'm committing the same mockery and the same rejection to Christ. I'm part of that. How? Earlier in Mark 9, we see Jesus talking about children, saying welcoming a little one is the same as welcoming him and his father. In Matthew 25, Christ is separating out the sheep and the goats. And he says, your care for the least of these is care for me. When you did not show care for the least of these, you did not show care for me. Throughout the New Testament, we get this idea, and we just sang about it, his blood runs through our veins, this idea that Christ dwells within us. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus said in John, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. This isn't just figurative language. It's not just some lofty idea. Christ dwells within me and you. That's why Paul takes so seriously in, in 1 Corinthians 6, fleeing from sexual immorality because you and I are the temple of God. God dwells within us, literally. So with that in mind, to mock to reject, to belittle a brother or sister is to mock or reject or belittle Christ. We do this sometimes knowingly. We do this sometimes unknowingly. I recently learned of an individual who felt excluded by me, rejected by me. That wasn't my heart. That wasn't my intention in any way. It's not what I wanted, not what I hoped for. But in my unknowingly excluding this individual, I'm also excluding Christ. I've done this knowingly. 
and various sarcastic remarks. I think sarcasm and mockery are close relatives. Both can be ways of disparaging someone for something, whether physical or belief. I've witnessed it with Amanda. Amanda is my wife. Uh, She gave me permission to share this story. Um, uh, Amanda has been a a vegetarian for a long time, almost 15 years now. We've been together for most of that. You know, it's that typical love story. They're together, then they're not, then they're together, then they're not. Um, in essence, I, was, I had done really well hiding my nerdiness, and then she would see it, and then I would hide it. And then I, I've seen people make jokes at her expense for choosing this, over-exaggerating the tastiness of something, and therefore disparaging a sister in Christ a joke of how ridiculous or silly her stance is. Of course, you know, we we, we always say, well, we didn't mean anything by it. It was just a joke. I was just being, I was just joking around. And yet that old adage, in jest, there is truth, rings loud and clear. That's just the way I show love. And and I, I think there is nuance there. In understanding this, but I, I say this to illustrate the fact that we are far more a part of this crowd that was there rejecting Christ than we even want to think about or admit or wrestle with. We're there. In rejecting a brother or sister in Christ, we reject Christ. Now, this illustrates two of the three ways that I want to apply our passage today. First, as I just said, uh, I, I am one of those at the cross. When I disparage a brother or sister, when I bully a brother or sister, I'm there. We are there. Let's admit that. I think the second is, is maybe we've been on the receiving end of that. And I touch on both sides because I think both sides matter at some level. We've been givers and we've been receivers to brothers and sisters in Christ of such things. And we're called to follow Christ. We're called to be a people that are quick to confess and quick to forgive. We know of one who was quick to forgive. Even while he was hanging on the cross, to those mocking him, to those rejecting him, to those belittling him, he says, Father, forgive. And the the second side is the fact that Christ understands such rejection. You're not alone if you've experienced rejection or exclusion or isolation or bullying, whether outside the church or inside the church. Christ understands. Christ knows. He knows intimately what exclusion feels like. He knows intimately what rejection feels like. He knows intimately what isolation feels like, what bullying feels like, what hateful speech feels like. You are not alone. And in all of this, he brings acceptance. He brings restoration of relationship. He brings inclusion. Again, we see that at another point 
when he's hanging on the cross, not here in Mark, but in Luke 23, one of the two rebels that were both insulting him, one of them sees something different. says, Lord, remember me when you enter paradise. And Jesus offers relationship, reconciliation. He offers inclusion. I believe the challenge before us is, is, is twofold. First, I think being receptive to others when they feel such things from us, rather than being quick to downplay, quick to dismiss, quick to treat flippantly the hurt or the wound. I think the flip side is feeling for those that have felt isolation, exclusion, rejection, bullying, to feel empowered to speak up. Not to bring judgment, but to bring reconciliation. That the church may be a place that models Christ on the cross. Okay, so that illustrates two of three ways. As I said, what's the third aspect I want to draw attention to? I circle back to the idea that Christ is crucified and is condemned for being king of the Jews. This is a central point to the passage. And as I said, Jesus, right, this guy from Nazareth, son of Joseph, was not the king the people expected, not the one that they really wanted. And here at the cross, we see how God works. Things are never what they seem in our world. A moment where a true king is shamed, is rejected. A moment where God seems absent, distant, where God's absence is most loudly expressed, as, as Henry Nouwen writes, we see God's presence most profoundly revealed. See, verse 31, he saved others, but he can't save himself. That's a sarcastic joke. That's an insult. <laughs> he saved others. He can't even save himself. They couldn't see how him not saving himself was saving others. That's the king's call. That's the king's vocation. The picture of a true king is one who would lay down his life for somebody else. And, and at this moment in time where rage, uh, the, the rage of humanity is unleashed against God, where the irreligious and the religious inflict their wounds on the heart of Christ, we see it was love that kept him there. We see him losing his life so that we may have life. Him choosing not to save himself so we can be saved through this mockery, through this rejection, through this bullying, through this exclusion, we, the condemned, find encouragement, find hope, find the power of God. But in all of that, the, the, the true power of really what's unfolding in this moment, yes, he experiences exclusion, he experiences bullying, he experiences rejection and mockery, 
But the true power of the cross is the rejection he experiences from his father. A rejection you and I will never have to experience. A rejection we will never have to feel. As bad as the physical pain was, none of the authors lay emphasis on that. They lay it on the rejection he experienced from his heavenly father. This, this is a rejection that we can't comprehend. This is isolation that we can't fathom. But you and I, we stand forgiven because he hung condemned. You and I don't experience that rejection because he experienced it to its fullest. We find love because he experienced our hate. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of Christ. That's kingship. That's a king I want to love and follow. How about you? Let's pray. Father, I cannot fathom the, the, the emotional and relational and spiritual pain and suffering that we see unfold on the cross before us. And Lord, it breaks my heart to know that you hung there, yes, for me, but also because of me. Wow. Christ, I pray that we would be a people who reflects that type of selfless love. That we would be a people in a, in a place that brings inclusion, that brings welcome brings relationship. Father, we, we, we give you our tithes and our offerings now, and they are but a small gift of thanks to what you've done. You have blessed us with life abundantly. So we give out of thanks. We give out of worship. Lord, I pray that you would use it to further your kingdom, to further your name, that more people would know of a Christ, of a king who would lay down his life. Not that Stonebridge would be known, not that we would be known, but that you, Christ, would be known. And Father, now as we sing, the power of the cross is that you hung condemned so that we could stand forgiven. May those words ring true in our minds, in our hearts, in our spirits. In your name we pray. Amen.